welcome to episode 68 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Some people go into disability advocacy and disability law because they feel compelled to help serve in a community that has many areas that need representation. Then there's Kelly Simino, who's known as the pushy lawyer. Kelly suffered a spinal injury in a car accident at age 16 that left her a paraplegic and confined to a wheelchair. But she decided to dedicate her life since then to becoming a lawyer specializing in product safety law and spinal injury law. She's also become quite an advocate for disability rights and accessibility laws due to her own experiences in law school and her career as a lawyer. She has an inspiring story and we were happy that she agreed to be a guest on this episode of Special Parents Confidential. We started off with her sharing the story of her spinal injury and how it inspired her to become a lawyer. Well, of course, at 16 years old, you you might have a lot of thoughts about what your life may look like. And then for anyone, really at any age, when you suffer a catastrophic injury where one minute you're living your life one way and the next next minute you're literally changing everything about how your life is, it can be very daunting. But um, for me, you know, in a lot of ways, being 16 years old, I had my, I had my whole life ahead of me and I could plan it out in a way that I could really um, even, you know, being in a wheelchair, uh, go on to do things that were meaningful to me and that I had an interest and passion in. And I always had thought about the idea of law. And so as I went through my, you know, undergraduate and continue to think about it, I, I knew it was something that I could do regardless of if I was in a wheelchair. And I, I continued to have that interest. And so it, it just led me to, to law school. Oh, huh, cool. So that's good. You kind of just uh, took what you had and decided to uh, go into that and uh, work with people in that area. Yeah. For for me, what has ended up happening is that the I, when I was 16, I was in a, a car wreck and I was in a, an older vehicle that had a lap belt um, only, you know, some of the back middle seats that just didn't have that three point restraint. And mm. so when the car made impact, I, it caused to hold me in and the rest of my body uh, flew forward. And that's actually what caused my spinal cord injury. Just the holding the seatbelt holding me in caused my uh, spinal uh, column to break and oh. my spinal cord to stretch, causing the spinal cord injury. So then of course, you know, thinking about um, the own my own issues I had surrounding this you know very life changing event um, there there were these ideas in my head like well you know how how are things changed like how are we able to have better safety how are we able to you know ensure people are protected when things like this happen very life changing events and so you know law is one of those ways that that you can affect change and while I don't think I was like quite as, you know, deep in my thoughts as I am now reflecting back, like I knew that that was a way the laws and being, you know, the, the role a lawyer has and bringing issues to light that are causing harm. And, and ultimately that's what led me to go into doing product liability work. That's what I've spent um, a significant amount of my career doing is product li- uh, liability litigation where, you know, there's different 
products that have caused harm and injury to people maybe over and over and over again. And the way to get it to change, the companies to change is to push them on it and say, you know, we're going to continue to hold you accountable to the law until you change something about how you're making your cars, how you're making your tires, how you're making safety features. So that's, you know, ultimately why I got into the type of law I've, I've practiced, um, is because of my experience, you know, when I was 16 years old. Yeah. You know, that's interesting too. A lot of people don't really think about how, um, product safety occurs. You know, there's this, uh, idea that the manufacturer, you know, uh, someone calls the manufacturer and says, Hey, you know, this is causing a problem. Oh, well, let's fix that. But it doesn't always happen that way because there's not necessarily without getting into, you know, specifics, there's often a disconnect though, between uh, management and executive administration versus reality on actual product usage. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, these are businesses running a business and they have to look at profits and the cost of changes. And so oftentimes when you just are looking strictly at the numbers, it seems overwhelming to think, how am I going to fix every single car that's coming out of our, you know, factory. How are we going to change all of this? And, and of course, a lot of times it does take, uh, the court saying, yes, this is, this is a safety issue and you have to change it. And then they can adapt and change. And now, you know, for example, um, any car that you're going to go buy now, you will not see a lap belt only in the back middle seat. They all have three point, um, safety, uh, seat belts. And, and there's a reason for that. It's not just one day it occurred to them that they should do that. It's because, um, they, there was a lot of people like myself becoming injured and then, Things were happening either, you know, through on the policy side of things, on the, you know, legal side of things that that ultimately allowed the, that permanent change on across the board, you know, for all car manufacturers to occur. Mm-hmm. So um, now being in a wheelchair, you decided to go to law school. Were there any challenges for accessibility or that sort of thing uh, as you decided to become an attorney? Because uh, the reason I bring this up is a while back, I interviewed uh, Michigan Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein, who is blind, and he had to sue the Michigan bar in order to become an attorney because they would not allow Uh, oral accommodations for the questions on the bar exam. I was wondering, were there any uh, accessibility issues for you when you started? Yeah, for for me, um, it... because I'm a paraplegic, which means that I use a manual wheelchair. I'm, I'm not able to ambulate at all, but I do have like my upper body, uh, upper extremities. And so for me, um, luckily the law school that I went to was, um, physically accessible. The, actually the, the classrooms themselves were based kind of like an auditorium setting. And so there would um, become situations, namely I, I served on, or I was, um, chosen to be on kind of a mock trial team. And we traveled around the country doing these mock trials where we would compete against other law schools, where we were trying a case like in a, in a mock courtroom setting. And, um, as we began to travel, you would be very surprised, like how many courthouses were these were mock trials were taking place in were simply like not readily accessible and not to like jump ahead too much. But when I started practicing law, I was practicing 
practicing in Atlanta and it, in one of the main courthouses in Atlanta, Georgia, in the, one of the counties in the main Atlanta metro area, the, I, I was not able to fit my wheelchair um, into the courtroom to get to where the judge was. Like it was, they, they had made these little doors that swung and they were so tiny, like I couldn't get through. And so, you know, of course, after that, I, they said, well, you could go out, you can go about this back way, you can get escorted by this person and go around and come th- back through in here. And I said, that's not the way I can appropriately represent my clients. I have to be at the same level as every other attorney coming in to represent a client in this courtroom in front of this judge. And if I'm having to have a special escort, go out the door, go around, go up and, and be disconnected from my client. And then, you know, then being able to finally get into the courtroom in a way I can approach the judge. That's not, that's not the way that it should be. Because that's taking away my ability to appropriately represent my client. And so we were able to, um, or I was able to um, have them re- redesign those courtrooms. And there were like three different courtrooms in, in the courthouse that had this set up. So I, you know, it was, it was literally just removing a barrier. And, um, and that was probably, you know, maybe four years ago. So not too long ago that, that these things are still coming up. And so back in law school, as I was traveling around in court courthouses, I was finding a lot of them would not have the ability to access the courtrooms. They might be up the little flight of stairs and they didn't have an elevator. And so there was a lot of um, switching around and rearranging. And then in, in the law school itself, there the auditorium style made it so that if I had to speak or something, like I couldn't get down to the bottom of the classroom. So sometimes it's just kind of a, a bad design that make that really makes an impact on the student in my situation. Like while my peers were going down and, and speaking in front of the class, like I, I didn't have that ability to. Um, but overall, I was able to be uh, successful in law school. Um, you know, the wheelchair really didn't get in the way of that in, in, in many respects. And so that's why really this line of work for me it is great because whether you're sitting or standing, I mean, there's societal barriers. I think that I've, I've more faced, um, being in law because you don't see a lot of lawyers in wheelchairs. But, um, outside of that, I, I've been able to navigate it with, you know, relatively, little difficulty, but at the same time, you know, any of the things I've had to do, it's just part of my line of work is advocating. So, um, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in doing that. And it's been good that in the case of, um, the courthouse in Atlanta and getting the courtrooms fixed, it, it was something that I was able to fix it not, not only for me, but you know, whoever else may be, uh, facing that situation, other lawyers or even other, um, citizens coming to, into the courtroom who may be in wheelchairs that now, you know, as it should be, provides really equal access because that's what the court is, is equal access, you know, of, of the law. Right, right. You know, it's, it's, it seems like maybe one of the uh, ways that uh, this kind of might become an issue is if they ever have a judge in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. And I've thought about that a lot because um, with the way the judges are situated in courtrooms is that they're, you know, higher up. And I have not had a judge and that I've encountered that has been in a chair. Um, but I'm sure of course the court would make those accommodations, but an, another way that I have 
in, you know, my professional life, um, really seeing this interaction with the judges in my chair is, um, actually my very first trial, I was sitting behind the table where, you know, the lawyers sit waiting for the judge. And then as they are ready for the judge to come in, they say the bailiff will come in and say, all rise, you know, the honorable, um, judge is here and the court is now in session. And of course I was not rising. I was sitting down in my chair behind the table and the judge didn't realize it's that and looked down at me and said, um, you know, you may be a young lawyer, but you need to show respect in my courtroom. And when it says all rise, it means all rise. And I kind of pushed back from the table so that you could start to see the wheelchair. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, your honor, I, I'm not able to stand. And, um, then, but what ended up happening is it kind of set everything off where the judge, you know, felt a little uncomfortable after that. And then throughout the trial, um, anytime that we had to speak, us and the, the other the opposing lawyers had to approach the law, uh, the judge to discuss something outside the ears of the jury. The, the judge said, no, no, you just stay at the table. Why don't your co-counsel, your, the other lawyer sitting with you, um, your, your partner can go, go up and talk to, talk to me. You don't need to worry about that. And I was really upset because, you know, I was like, this is my trial. This is my case. This is my client. And if I'm not able to be a part of this discussion, not only that, like what's the jury thinking when they see this lawyer who's not being invited up to these conversations between the lawyers and the judges. And so I really, had, and I'm glad it happened my first trial because it could, the things that I never occurred to me could possibly happen, um, did. And so I could, you know, make a plan like, okay, well, how should I do this now so that I'm not embarrassed, the judge isn't embarrassed. And, you know, my being in a wheelchair doesn't distract from what I'm there to do, which is to be a lawyer and represent my client and, and have, you know, a successful trial. So, from then on. Um, and, and another thing was like having podium, like the podiums where the lawyers speak, of course, are so high. I couldn't, you know, when I rolled up to it, I couldn't get to the, where the microphone was and I couldn't set my, my notebook down that had all my questions in it and my notes I'd prepared, you know, I, it just was not set up well. And I had not really, um, realized all the, ways in which a courtroom is set up for people who are standing. And, um, cause even where the jury sits, like it's, it would not, I couldn't even get into in many of the courtrooms. I couldn't even get into that area. If I were, were to be a juror, juror, I would have to sit outside the jury box, which I, I would not like because I, you know, as a juror, you want to be part of that group. But, um, now, you know, it's of course calling ahead, talking to the, you know, the staff attorney for that judge or his office or her office and saying, you know, here's my situation. I'm going to be appearing on this day for this trial and working through it so that there's not these. And, and I want to be, if there's going to be, you know, a, a time which there inevitably is where I need to speak to the um, judge and approach, you know, approach the bench. Like I need to be able to have a way that I'm able to speak to the judge. And so unfortunately, you know, it's just one of those things I have to put in that work to set it up that way, because if I don't, it, it just, it doesn't go 
the the way it really needs to go for me to be the professional that I am. Right, right. And that just, you know, when, you know, and I hadn't even thought of that too, but yeah, you're right. The, uh, the design of most courtrooms is completely prohibitive to accessibility for, um, not just wheelchairs, but also people on crutches or canes or there's a lot of, it's very small, very tight and very cramped and all, uh, set up for standing up. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think about it really, you know, because the, citizens of that area, that county, or, um, it are the people showing up to be the drawers of a particular trial. I mean, it's not only important for the courtrooms to be set up in a way for a person bringing a case in front of a court or the lawyers representing them. Um, but you know, the drawers like this, it really needs to be open and accessible to all because that's that's what our court system is made of is the idea that anyone can come before the court and bring a bring a claim whether it has merit or not is of course another issue but the idea that um, we can all have the the court system is approachable to all in this country makes us very unique and um, at the same time you know of course there's still these barriers that we're having to to deal with and it, a lot of it is because they're very old buildings and there um, haven't been much rehab or restoration done to where that might trigger some of the uh, ADA coming in to where they would have to retrofit or redesign certain things. So, But even more than that, I think it's like, okay, well, you know, even though you haven't gone through and done this process that would trigger you having to do it. Like, let's look at where we are, you know, in 2018, going into 2019 and, and what does this court represent? And it needs to represent access to all people. So that's, that is something that, that I've, I've, you know, directly had to deal with. And I'm sure I'll continue to, especially when, when you get into, um, you know, if, if I've faced it in very populated, like metropolitan courthouses, very large ones, and certainly the more smaller community, smaller courthouses are going to have those issues as well. Oh, yeah, it's everywhere. And, uh, you know, um, as we were recently reminded uh, with the uh, death of former President George Bush, uh, we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was supposed to broaden the scope of accessibility throughout the United States. But uh, as you just pointed out, there's still a long way to go. You also recently had a situation that I saw on a news report uh, with an Uber driver who refused to give you a ride because of your wheelchair. Can you talk about that situation and what else is going on as far as uh, other issues that might be out there? Yeah, well, um, I guess I'll preface to say I think, um, you know, especially in, in remembering um, George Bush and him being um, in the Capitol today, like I'm, I now live in the Washington, D.C. area, so it's kind of more highlighted in my mind. But um, the, the ADA was a wonderful piece of legislation. And so while there's certainly like many issues that are still being placed on individuals with disabilities and so many challenges that we're still working through, you know, 28 years later, um, it's bones are really good and of the, of the legislation. And of course, like it's, it's really important that, that the ADA stay intact fully and, you know, that nothing get taken away from it, which has um, been challenged in, in recent, in the last couple of years. But, um, 
So I, I'm now living in the DC area. And so as many people do, um, you know, getting this gig economy that's becoming so much a part of everyone's life now, um, it's, it's really important, um, you know, for me, using the rideshare services to get to one place to the other, you know, you've got to when you're I'm I'm a mom of two young kids. You know, I'm a lawyer in D.C. Like I'm I'm very busy. And oftentimes I just need to get to one place or the other very quickly. And while I often will use public transportation, you know, sometimes it's just more convenient, easier on this particular day. It was raining. And so that's another thing I consider whether like rolling to a metro stop rather than hopping in, a, you know, scooting over into a car. But I um, had called uh, Uber as I, you know, do in those types of situations and just needing to get somewhere quickly. And um, a minivan actually pulled up and an empty minivan, like just with a driver, there was no one else in there. And so as I normally do, I just kind of went up, got into the front seat. And then the driver who had been on his phone, like looked up and I was leaving a meeting at a hotel. And so the people at the hotel were actually like, Hey, let me get your wheelchair and we'll put it in the trunk for you. And I said, Hey, that's great. Um, although typically, you know, if I'm just getting in a car or something like that, like I, I, I drive as well. So I transfer my wheelchair in and out of cars, uh, out of my car and other people's cars all day, every day. I mean, it's, that's, something that I regularly do and, and often do in Ubers or Lyfts or wherever as well. But in this case, since I, you know, when there's a helpful person willing to help me out, I'm always willing to accept that. So, um, then the, the driver just saw it trying to put the wheelchair, you know, me having a wheelchair and, and trying to put it in the vehicle. And he just, he said, no, that he didn't have space for it and he didn't want the wheelchair in. And I said, you know, I tried to explain to him that the wheelchair folded up, um, that it was very small. It would fit in his trunk. Like it would be, you know, no problem. Like, I mean, this is a minivan. I drive, you know, a car and have been in much smaller vehicles and, and he just, he just wouldn't. And oftentimes it's, um, the fear of the unknown. I don't know in this particular driver's case, like what his particular problem was with allowing me to, to take the ride that I was willing to pay for, but he, um, he just wouldn't. And so I've, I've had to get out and, and wait and, and find a, d a different way home. And so that's, um, essentially what happened. And then he actually charged me for the ride that he wouldn't let me on, which I think was just a little, you know, insult to injury there. But after that situation, I really started thinking because, you know, with the gig economy being the way that's really driving our economy and our industries now, like how, you know, the air, like Airbnb is, or the different rideshare networks, um, it's really left the disability community out in large part. I mean, there's now, you know, some effort in some of these companies to start thinking about it, um, which is good, but in a lot of ways it's not. And the Uber situation is particularly hard because not only do you have a situation for, um, people like myself who use a wheelchair, I can independently transfer into any vehicle, but a lot of my, um, you know, fellow chair users 
can't do that. And so they need wheelchair accessible vehicles. And, and that's even, you know, harder to come by because it's, there's, there's just no, there was just no thought of that for these companies. And so it's a huge problem. And, you know, um, talking about the the gig economy and all that, that's, that's a, a great uh, subject to hit on here, because like you say, a lot of these people, independents, uh, they're not actually employees and therefore they uh, may be unlicensed and unregulated and seem to consider themselves exempt from the laws that a taxi company driver or a regulated limousine driver would have to follow. Do you think that's part of the problem here or it, could it be something else as far as that goes? Well, um, ever since my issue, which was about six months ago, I've kind of been really digging into this issue to see, like, why is this happening? Because, unfortunately, this issue is not did not just happen to me. It's happening to a lot of people, whether it be with mobility issues, whether it be uh, wheelchairs, whether it be walkers, scooters, crutches, whatever that a driver just thinks may get in their way, may get their car dirty or whatever. And not only that, it's, it's happening a lot in the, within the blind community with people with service animals where the drivers are like, Hey, I don't want a dog in my car. I'm allergic. I'm not going to take you. And, you know, they're so in a lot of ways, these companies were initially saying, well, yeah, these are just independent contractors. Like what control do we have over them? Um, but ultimately they do, there's policies and procedures. There's things that all of these, um, drivers, you know, specifically talking about the transportation network providers, the rideshare companies, you know, that they're having to sign. And, and just like you could not refuse a person because they were female or because of their race or because of their religion, you, you similarly cannot refuse a person because of their disability. They, these are protected classes, you know, under federal law. And, and so regardless of what one person, one driver may think, you know, like, oh, well, I just don't want to deal with this wheelchair. I don't want to have to move it. I don't want it get in my car. I don't want this dog sitting in here. Um, they can't do that. So, so how do we change that? Because that's a driver and they're have their own ideas in their head. And, and it really goes to the, the companies themselves putting policies and procedures in place that are honoring the, these federal laws, you know, um, where people cannot be turned away for services based on certain protected classes, um, classifications. And, um, and I think that's, that's where a lot of it is, has been failed. Like for example, uh, the national federation for the blind, you know, and seeing so many people in the blind community being turned away. And that's, that's really so key for their ability to have transportation because, you know, they, they aren't able to drive themselves around. And so having a service like an Uber or, uh, another rideshare is so important because, um, you know, it provides a, a more reliable form of transportation so that they can get to jobs more reliably. But what's happening is they're not because they're being turned away. And so there, there was, um, they, the national federation for the blind, for example, did end up having to file a lawsuit to kind of push Uber on the issue. And they, they ended up settling it. So there was no like court determinations, but now, you know, now drivers are having to sign things specifically related to, okay, I will accept, you know, service animals. I will not turn away someone because of a, a dog. But where, what the, 
real issue is I think they're in a lot of ways what these companies are trying to say is that we're, we're actually not um, we're not a company that has to be held to the ADA because we're not really a transportation company. We're a technology company and we're just connecting people. So we don't really fall under the ADA. And unfortunately, as of today, there has not been a determination on that. And so all these companies, and so I'm, I'm, and there are cases going through the courts where you know, ultimately it would be beneficial for a judge to rule on this saying like, yes, you know, the ADA does fall to you because you are, you know, for these reasons. But right now, in in some instances, they're saying, well, we're just an app. We're, we're technology. We're not really a transportation company. And so, yeah, at this point in time, there's there's not a lot of great hope for us because of there's this was not really thought about, as you mentioned, it's not regulated on the same level as the, um, like taxi and limousine commission is regulating, you know, car service, other kinds of, you know, black car services or taxi companies. Um, and so there's some really big problems and, and it's going to have to be pushed on the policy side as well as, as through the legal system, just to have some clarification as to when a company has to, you know, look to the ADA to make sure that they're compliant. And what that would more entail would be, you know, providing like wheelchair accessible vehicles because the ADA doesn't have really anything to do with discriminating on it, I mean, it does in some ways, but, you know, as far as, you know, there's federal laws that just say you can't, whether I'm going into a movie theater or to a school or whatever, like you can't turn me away just based on you know, the fact that I, I use a wheelchair, but, um, the ADA does need to apply to these companies as well to say, like, not only that, you need to consider, um, how you're going to accommodate people with different mobility issues, namely having wheelchair accessible vehicles, waves, and there's not a really great, like Uber has not been able to come across a really great solution in that way. And I've, been able to talk to people within Uber and trying to get their ear on this issue. And, and they really don't have any solutions at this point. And, and I think a lot of it's because they're not talking enough to, to people with disabilities. And secondly, they have no one with disabilities within their company being able to, um, direct them on these issues or make that a priority for them. And it goes back to, you know, the old saying that the people with disabilities are probably uh, the last group of people who are discriminated against, but very little is being done as far as uh, yes. trying to get that fixed. Yeah, it's it's always the afterthought. It's always and, and it's so much harder to fix something because now instead of having a, a company built out where you, you know, automatically have ways to transport people with disabilities, you know, they're saying, and well, how, like we've, we've grown now, now we deliver food and we have scooters all over the place. And in Dubai, we have helicopters, but you want us to have wheelchair accessible vehicles. That's impossible. You know, so that's, that's, that's the problem is now it's all the afterthought and, and it, they, they really, unfortunately at this time have no clear solution on how to make this, um, a nationwide, uh, like make accessibility something that they are approaching on a nationwide. They're like trying to roll out some things, DC being one of the places, but I can tell you 
every single time I try to get a wheelchair accessible vehicle, like there are none available. So while they, they say there is, I don't know if that means there's one wheelchair accessible vehicle in the DC metro area, or there's, you know, 10 or however many, but they're not available. And if they are, then you're waiting a really, really long time. You know, I've heard people waiting, uh, an hour for it. And, and that's not really, you know, the, business model of a company like Uber to provide that service where you're not having to think and call ahead and wait an hour. It's you, you call, uh, you call and, and within, you know, say 15 minutes, you're able to get a a ride to wherever you want to go. Right. And of course there's no financial, there's no real financial incentive or reason burden for them to do it yet. (laughs) Well, you know, I, at the same time, like, I think they have, engaging the disability community, like, why would that not be a good economic decision? That's, you know, engaging a very large population across the United States. I mean, you know, and and you're not only talking about um, the disability community, you're also talking about the aging community and all the people who may need a little more assistance, like getting places, the elderly population. When you combine those two sectors of our society, I think that that's a substantial, um, you know, population that can have a really great push on financially for these companies. So I, I think that they should see this as a good financial decision because anytime you're more inclusive, it should always be to that company's, you know, economic advantage to, to have a, a larger population being able to be served. Definitely. Definitely. Now, um, going further with uh, accessibility issues, you know, many cities, many cities in America have buildings that don't have access for wheelchairs or even people on crutches. And there's been a large amount of resistance from the building owners to make any modifications, uh, citing, you know, financial burden. What do you say to those who insist that there is too much of a financial burden to provide accessibility? Or as I've even heard some people say, well, it just ruins the look of my buildings. Yeah, I think that could, you know, kind of go back to this idea that, you know, being more inclusive is always going to be better business. And the the idea that it's going to be, I think it's this fear, this to so many people, you know, the, the world of people with disabilities is really an un- unknown area because they don't, maybe they don't know someone, they don't live with a disability themselves. And so, um, that's just not their world. And, and they're, instead of, you know, thinking, Hmm, well, how can I, you know, create this environment where there's more people coming there saying like, Oh, I don't know about this. This is unknown to me. And so I'm just not going to address it because it seems really expensive. And, I think that the the fear is driving a lot of these issues, whether it's not like picking you up from, you know, Uber driver, you know, taking you or approaching places and saying like, well, you know, I'm just a small mom and pop store. Like you really can't expect me to be accessible. Can you, or, you know, actually like even in DC, like I, I moved to DC, um, about a year and a half ago. And so living in this area, there's a lot of very historic areas, a lot of very nice, um, areas of town, like Georgetown is one particular neighborhood's very nice area. And it's completely inaccessible. Um, The old town part of Alexandria, which has a lot of rich history dating back to Washington and all that. Like, I mean, one in, 
you know, every three stores I can't get into because, and, and it's all, well, these are historical, you know, their preservation. And, but it's really frustrating because it, it takes away. Another example is me and my family recently went up to Boston, um, earlier in the fall to, for a family vacation. We were up there for a week and even, you know, going on the freedom trail, um, there were multiple stops like on there, you know, very historically important to our U S history that I simply could not access because they didn't have a lift. They didn't have a ramp. They had nothing. And it was super discouraging. Cause I'm like, this is my history too. You know, like this is my history and I don't have access to it because we're still at a point where it goes beyond like what, what the laws are saying. Um, it's going to like, what are people's values or do we valuing, like being able to have a more inclusive environment. And as it relates to business owners, what I think this fear has created is something that was actually very scary, um, going on on Capitol Hill in the last two years. And there was, um, legislation being proposed, um, from a representative in, out of Texas. Um, it was called the, um, ADA education and reform act. So when you think of the name, you're like, Oh, okay. Education's involved something. Well, what it ended up being was a notice, um, for people with disabilities that are a requirement to give notice for anything to be done. So for example, if I go, you know, if you own a restaurant and I go to it and I come up and I realize there's no way I can get in, um, there's really nothing I can do. Um, there, I have to write a note. I have to, and then I have to wait 60 days and then they're provided a certain amount of time to make, uh, substantial progress, but there was no, you know, definition of what that even meant. Um, and then there was really nothing that you, you could do, but what the reason why that this was coming about, um, being passed as a proposed legislation was that a lot of business owners were saying, well, we've got, you know, people come in and they're saying our, you know, sign for the wheelchair, for the accessible parking spot is two inches too high. And it was, you know, they were saying there were a lot of predatory practices, but what it was ending up going to do was really rolling back on the ADA and taking dismantling the ADA to require more of a person who was being, um, not given access. And, and by the way, we've had 20, well, we, yeah, we've had 28 years to be able to make, you know, accommodation changes and progress because of the ADA. And so the last thing we want is to have something coming that's requiring more notice, um, more time being wait, like for a person to wait just to have access to something. And so, um, that is something that is still kind of lurking around on Capitol Hill. And, um, I was there lobbying against it, you know, over the summer. And so hopefully we can keep that away because, uh, we need to continue to move forward with the ADA and, and businesses, you know, instead of being fearful again of like, Oh, well, am I going to get sued because I didn't have my ramp is in at the right angle or something like that. We need to, you know, more approach it on how can 
we be creating an environment that's inclusive of people, whether it's, you know, even a stroller could benefit. So families could benefit the aging population, people with various, you know, disabilities could, I mean, it's, I, it's such a large group that can always benefit from some kind of universal design that I think it's, it's well worth it. And more so than that, just talking about it, like you and I are too, to eliminate some of these fears of businesses that just don't know what they're up against, what they're, what they're afraid of that, that may or may not really be an issue financially. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that a little more. I mean, you know, you're talking about this legislation that's up here and our current political climate in Washington, D.C., of course, is pretty much hands off when it comes to enforcing regulations on business, it seems. Uh, And now with these ideas of rolling back and even eliminating some of the uh, ADA laws, it's like there's this whole attitude out there that uh, we just need to push it back, get it out of here and uh, go back to just, uh, you know, being uh, for who we want to be for and not for everybody else. Do you think there should be more oversight? Obviously, there does need to be. Um, Where do you think that uh, solutions could happen as far as uh, being able to uh, work with this in the future? Yeah, I I think that, you know, this idea of deregulation being the direction that our country needs to go in um, is is going to have a like substantial burden on a very already uh, disenfranchised like population of the like, you know, namely like the disability community, because um, a lot of times, you know, when all of the, the amount of oversight that is needed to provide uh, adequate access um, is often not even enough as it is now, because as we see, you know, there are daily occurrences where there's not the access being given to people. And so, you know, really, I what we need to do is take what is already, you know, a foundation, the Americans with Disability Act, which was enacted in 1990, and 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 look at it and say, well, instead of taking away parts of it, um, because we we think it's hurting businesses, or because we're afraid of these frivolous lawsuits, or these other, you know hot button words that they're throwing out there to really kind of incite fear into business owners. We really have to think about, um, what, what needs to be included more and what's not working right in order to be able to have a functioning, um, piece of legislation. And yeah, so the, the deregulation is, is really going to hurt the disability population because, it's unfortunately like our community needs those regulations in place, needs oversight in place because it's not on everyone's mind. Even the people, you know, business owners with the best intentions, it's not on everyone's mind. They don't know they're, they're not, you know, they're not aware of what's required and they're not going to do it on their own because it's outside of what they might be in their thinking or their background or their experience. And so we've, we've have to keep these portions of the ADA intact and, and I will continue to go on Capitol Hill as long as that, uh, there's any mention of things like, uh, the 
the H.R. 620 was the bill, the ADA Education and Reform Act or any other variation that's coming up trying to be more, you know, quote, pro-business. But ultimately, it's it's really it would really, really damage the entire disability community. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny you brought up the um, the excuse of frivolous lawsuits and Mm -hmm. out of control lawsuits. You know, what's really interesting to me is whenever someone actually confronts someone and says, uh, give us some case examples of actual lawsuits. And they, they never seem to be able to do that. Are the, are there really all these out of control, frivolous lawsuits going on against business owners? Or is this just a pile of nonsense being spread by some very prejudiced people? I, yeah. So, you know, there's always going to be these kind of more predatory practices happening. So to say that this is not happening at all, like I is, I mean, it's just, that wouldn't be accurate because there Mm. always are going to be someone with, with not pure motives that may go around saying, well, you know, your sign for your wheelchair parking spot is, you know, two feet too low or something, you know, just things that really obviously aren't looking after the disability community because that's not really, you know, the point of it all. And so, but what, what this does though, is it bolsters this idea of like, you know, when a legislator is trying to put, um, something like this through that really is ripping away parts of the ADA, they can say, well, you know, it's all these frivolous lawsuits. This is a huge issue. This is happening all over and it's damaging, you know, our entire communities where really the damage is coming from taking away uh, the rights and the access of people with disabilities. And so while that, you know, there may be some very like, you know, there may be a couple you know, lawyers out there that are more targeting businesses in this way, that that is not um, what the problem is. What the, the problem is, is taking away parts of, uh, you know, the landmark piece of legislation that protects individuals with disabilities. So I, and I think it's go, it's it just kind of helps incite fear in people, which helps bolster this idea that, this is a problem and that this there's something should be done about it. And that's why there should be this reform and education on the ADA because of this huge problem, which it's not. And, and I, I hope that, and I, you know, most of the legislators I've, I've talked to on this issue, when you put it in those terms, they get it. But when they first read it and they first see these words like frivolous lawsuits, and then they see these big, you know, buzzwords, they said, oh, well, well, we thought it was all about this. And we didn't really realize that what it's really doing is taking away the rights of the people with disabilities. So a lot, and which is why it's important to call your legislators and be involved in this process, because without those stories, that personal experience to attach to it, all they're hearing is, oh, well, we're doing this to protect from all these frivolous lawsuits, which really is, yeah, there's no data out there that that's, that's just rampantly happening and causing, you know, substantial harm to businesses. Right. Right. So what are some of the other issues that concern you the most and what kind of improvements do you think still need to be made out there? Um, a lot of the, the issues that I'm seeing, you know, lately are from a societal like educational perspective as far as 
the visibility of people with disabilities. Um, I'm, I'm out in the community a lot. Like I have two young children, a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And so, you know, in addition to being a lawyer, which is a really important role, my most important role is being a mom. And, um, as a mom with a disability, like for my kids, that's all they know. Um, I've, I've been in a wheelchair, you know, since they were both born. And, um, and I think a lot in becoming a mom and going through that part of my life, um, I started to notice a lot of things like when we adopted our daughter. And so being a person with a disability adopting, um, there, there's a lot of just bad information out there as far as like the abilities of, of a person with a disability to parent. And, um, and luckily, you know, I, I have my, my, I have a wonderful daughter and we, we were able to navigate the adoption process. And a lot of the fact that I was, um, in a wheelchair, but I will say that, you know, we had initially thought about, um, adopting internationally and, um, we're not able to solely based on the fact that I was in a wheelchair because other countries would not, um, allow a person with, uh, a disability such as mine to be able to adopt. And so I think there needs to be a lot more education out there and, and the visibility of people leading healthy and productive lives. Um, you know, then when my son was born, I was pregnant with him and I gave birth to him and, and a lot of people had never really seen that. They, they had never seen a woman in a wheelchair, you know, like visibly pregnant and it confused people and they wondered how that happened. And, and so it was an interesting phenomenon to go through this and be going through my daily lives, but to have people, you know, approach me just very confused on, on what they were seeing. Um, I actually tried before I moved up to DC, the DC area. I tried my last case in Atlanta when I was about like 35 weeks pregnant. So that, that was even the most probably interesting experience was for the, the court to have and the jury to have a, a very pregnant woman in a wheelchair, lawyer trying a case. Um, but that I guess makes for good memories. But in, in any event, um, you know, I think a lot of the things that I'm seeing now is just, the idea that society is is not understanding the abilities and the scope of 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 life that people live with disabilities, and um, I try to do as much as I can, you know, just being visible in the community, uh, talking with people to bring more education um, because it, it it just seems to be this ongoing issue as far as you know as I have moved into my adult world and. And, you know, now I'm actually um, in the process of forming a law firm with another uh, lawyer in D.C. who is a quadriplegic. So he is in a wheelchair, too. He's in a power wheelchair and has limited movement in his upper extremities as well. And so for he and I, like when we're together, you know, going to talk to people, it's it's often surprising, one, that we're both lawyers and two, that we're both business people. And um I think which means even more so why we need to continue to be in the community so that the issue of disability, you don't simply thinking of a wheelchair in the terms of someone who's sick or in a hospital or not well, but you see people who are living life and living it fully. That's that's great. You know, it's a, it's interesting to hear you talking about, you know, um, 
you're, you know, the person you're trying to become a partner with in a law firm, I think that would be uh, an amazing uh, step there. It's almost like you've hit the grand slam of awareness <laughs> for issues there. Yeah. <laughs> like when you were talking about also being pregnant in the wheelchair and a lawyer trying a case. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to me about how many people to this day, even though we know you know, we had Stephen Hawking, for mm-hmm. example, who recently passed mm-hmm. away as well. All these other, you know, people who have um, are able to have productive and amazing lives. And yet we still think, well, how can they do that from a wheelchair? Well, it's because they can and there is no difference. Yeah. And and with technology now, there really isn't there isn't really as many barriers as one may think. And it's, it's, it really is amazing, you know, how much you can do with your mouth and a stick and a, you know, the technology of your phone and stuff to be able to be whoever you want to be in whatever way, um, be able to be a professional and own a business or, um, you know, be in the business community or be whatever, or, you know, for, for, parents, if it's just being a mom, being in a community and being able to, to access the things that, you know, playgrounds, like it's not just about making playgrounds accessible for the kids, but I love it. Cause there's several like very, um, inclusive playgrounds in the area. And I love it cause it makes it so I can participate with my kids. I can go up into the playgrounds and play with my kids, whereas most of the time I can't. And so, you know, it's, again, this idea that the more that you're universally thinking of designing things and, and planning out things, I mean, it's, it's not, you think it might be for, oh, well, let's build this. So like children that may have, you know, uh, various disabilities can have access to, but you're actually opening up to other people, including the parents with the disabilities. And so it's, it's, um, you know, great when we think in terms like that. And I think it's, you know, coming up more and more because it, you know, the more we talk about it, um, and see how important it is and really to see like, okay, the people with disabilities have this ability to live this type of life. And, and, you know, for me after, after I was injured, um, you know, I was 16, I was having to think a lot. It's a, it's a hard time of any 16 year old, you know, you go through these hard times cause you're, you're changing and you're trying to figure out who you are. And so it's a very impressionable time. And so for me having to, to become a person in a wheelchair, you know, there's a lot of these things you're thinking about very self-conscious and so, and as I've been going through life, I'm like, well, you know, it would be, wouldn't it be easier if I was just walking? And then several years ago, it, it took me longer than I probably wish, but it's a lot of it's just because of the way our society thinks. I finally was like, well, you know, the issue isn't that I'm not walking. The issue is that these buildings aren't accessible. Like the issue is that I can't get into doing the things I want to do as I am. So the problem isn't me and my inability to walk and me you know, so me wishing I can walk, that's not, that's not really going to solve the problem. Like what's going to solve the problem is to have communities that are uh, focused on being accessible to people. So that's it. That's exactly right. 
that's a uh, boy. You just that you couldn't have done it better <laughs> as far as explaining it right there. Um, I guess uh, kind of sort of getting to the point where we're going to wrap things up. If there is, if you could talk to anyone who just refuses to think for one second that allowing greater access for people with disabilities would be any kind of an improvement or that this is just nonsense and we shouldn't even be wasting time on it. What would you say to that person to maybe help change their mind? Oh, wow. Um, I think that it's hard. Well, you know, it's hard to imagine why um, we, we can't see things in, in a bigger picture, you know, and, and I think we're also very busy and we're living our lives and we see things in terms of us and our own lives and what we're doing. And, and we forget that there's these other people in the world and that there's other, you know, needs outside of the needs of one person. And so to the people who may be resistant for various reasons to seeing these changes, to, to making these adaptions, to, to seeing like the need of including people with disabilities, because, you know, it's not just mobility disabilities, it's intellectual, it's developmental, you know, like it's, 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 um, seeing and hearing and like, there's so many problems and it's becoming more aware of how, how your small, act of accessibility for a person can be life-changing one way. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a way I'm guilty of it myself because like, for example, on social media, um, you know, when I, I've started posting, like I never thought about captioning things. So to be inclusive of, of, um, people who are not like, who are not able to see, um, so that they could see what picture I was posting, um, because it wasn't my world and I, I wasn't blind. And so it didn't really cross my mind that, well, if I don't caption a picture, then how is that person who can't see it going to be able to see what I'm talking about in my post? And so it's little things like that. Like it doesn't take me much time to caption a picture, but you know, for the blind community, it allows them to be a part of my world in the same way other people are. And so I think, you know, we can all learn, you know, it's, it, it may not be these blatant forms of someone saying, I don't want you in my, you know, restaurant because you have a disability. I think it, it, I think it's smaller than that. I think we all struggle because it's not our world. And so we don't, and we think it, well, we have, it's really up to Facebook to change it. And there needs to be these big things changing when in fact, like we can all make like little changes that can have a really great impact on people that are different than us. And so I guess that's, that's how I would answer that. That's great. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want to know more? Well, um, you can contact me on Facebook. I have the pushy lawyer. Um, my email is the pushy lawyer at gmail.com. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at the pushy lawyer. My thanks again to Kelly Simino, the pushy lawyer. You can find links to her Facebook page, Instagram, and Twitter feeds on the main page of this episode at SpecialParentsConfidential.com. I'd like to invite you to join this conversation by liking the Facebook page for Special Parents Confidential. You can comment on the episode, share stories, and even suggest ideas for future episodes. Just use the Facebook link on our website. We also have other social media buttons that make it easy for you to share our podcasts on all your favorite social media platforms. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.